Now, like a lot of you, I've probably spent more than my fair share of time with a bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean, it's practically the official spirit of college football tailgates in the South. And I'll be honest, I've never thought too deeply about the history of that spirit. In fact, typically while drinking, I don't think too deeply about anything at all. I knew it was distilled in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and that, ironically, it's made in a dry county, and that's probably about it. But in 2016, we learned a little bit more about the history of that whiskey. Now, legend always had it that as a young boy, Jack Daniel had been taught distilling by a Tennessee preacher named Dan Call. But as it turns out, that story is only half true. It wasn't Call who trained young Jack. It was a slave Call had rented out who was the original distiller, a man by the name of Nearest Green. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this is our 15th and last episode of Season 1. Today, I am talking with Fawn Weaver, an entrepreneur, author, and investor who has done more than just about anybody to revive the legacy of Nearest Green. Weaver just launched a new distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee, named for Nearest Green, and its signature spirit, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, was recently named one of the best whiskeys in the world. Not bad for a brand new distillery. And this is a story that's going to surprise you. It's a story of love and a story of reconciliation, a story of history, a story of the future, and ultimately a story of the South. And it may just change the way you think about that drink in your hand. So now let's raise a toast to the Reckon interview. Vaughn Weaver, thank you for coming on the Reckon interview. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think to start, why don't you tell us the story of Uncle Nearest Green? Wow. Well, that's how long you got. I mean, that's a... <laughs> long as it takes. We will... Uh, I'll go the the truncated version of that. So we see him, at least as far as the census is concerned, we see that he was born in Maryland and according to the census, uh, 1820. Now, understand that the census taking at that time was <laughs> was really someone knocking on your door looking at you and saying, this is how old I think you are. Right. Because we were property as African-Americans until December 6, 1865. So when they then go to do the census after that, none of the African-Americans knew when they were born. And they certainly were not counting calendar years. Right. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so the census we have to take with a grain of salt. Sure. But the 1880 census does have nearest listed as being 60 years old, which would then take it back to 1820. And... In Maryland. So the, the entire page of that census, every single person is from Tennessee. It only deviates in one on one part. And that is in reference to Nears Green. It shows him as being born in Maryland. So that is what we know uh, in terms of that. Now, how he got here, I would assume it was through the slave trade that brought a lot of those slaves that came in through the east and came down into the South. But who brought him here, how he got here, have no idea. What we know is somewhere around 1856, we see him on a farm in Lynchburg, Tennessee, in the hills above Lynchburg, Tennessee, the Dan Call Farm. And he is the distiller there. Uh, Dan Call marries a woman, Mary Jane. He was very young, only 18. She was about the same age. And they get married, but she's a teetotaler. Oh, really? <laughs> Did not believe in uh, drinking, let alone making any type of spirit. The irony is, is that he has this distillery on this property, but he also, on the other edge of the property, it's 338 acres, is a church. Mm. So he has almost a triangle. His On one end of the triangle, his home, and 
His distillery is on the other tip of the triangle and his church is on the other tip of the triangle. And the three were trying not to interact, (laughs) which worked just fine until the temperance movement began really rising. And that became a problem. And so not only did Mary Jane make him decide, but so did his church. And he decided, I am going to get out of the whiskey business. However, (laughs) he never actually shut down the distillery. The person who was distilling, the person who was making the whiskey was an African-American named Nearest Green. Now, we know that his legal name is Nathan, but as far as his children, his grandchildren, their legal documents never list him as Nathan. So they all say Nearest. So I have to assume there's a reason for that and that he chose that name as what he wanted to be called. We don't know where it comes from, so we just say it's nearest and dearest. (laughs) Uh, But in Tennessee or in Lynchburg, everyone called him Uncle Nearest, which wasn't in reference to his race, which for a lot of Southern cities it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in Lynchburg, they also referred to Jack Daniels' Uncle Jack. And all of Jack's relatives were referred to as uncle and all of Nearest's uncle as well. So that was more of a common term of respect and age that indicated those two things, at least in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And so we see him there and a young boy by his own biography, it has him as arriving when he was eight years old and he was born in 1848. And so this young boy who mother died at four months old, who was orphaned at 15. You have this boy that's on this property and he's learning how to make whiskey from Nearest Green. And when Dan Call introduces him to Nearest, he introduces him by saying, this is Uncle Nearest. He's the best whiskey maker I know of. Well, that's an important statement because there were 16 other distilleries in a four mile radius. Wow. And so Dan Call is saying, Nearest was the best. And and the question becomes, why is Nearest the best? Why did he want Nearest to teach this young Jack Daniel? And I think it comes down to the Lincoln County process. It is that taking a traditional bourbon, the distillate for a, a bourbon, and running it through sugar maple charcoal before putting it in the barrel. Now, it doesn't add anything, just removes fusel oils, congeners, that kind of thing, before Mm -hmm. it goes into the barrel. So it's an additional filtration step. But especially at that time, where the whiskey would have been incredibly harsh coming out of the barrels, utilizing this process would have softened it a little bit. And that, I understand you speculate, might have been uh, a process that came over from the slave trade. Yeah, well, well. I, I think it's speculate, but I think somebody would have to prove it wrong. Sure. And I think we almost have to assume that that is the case, because when you look at American whiskey, we can track every aspect of the distilling process, the barreling process, every every bit of making whiskey. We can track to the Irish, the Scots, the English, the French. We know where every element came from. But then you have charcoal mellowing that drops out of the sky into Kentucky in the mid 1700s. Mm-hmm. And I always joke that if something drops out of the sky anywhere near or in the South in the middle of the 1700s and no one has taken credit, let's just give it to a slave on general principle. Yeah, that's uh, however, what we do know is, is in West Africa, the way that they purified their food and the way they filtered their water was with charcoal. To this day, the trees that are cut down in, in West Africa, the majority of them are utilized for charcoal. My understanding is that Nearest Green was not owned by Dan Call. He was 
rented by Dan Cullen. Correct. I have no uh, ownership papers on Nears Green at all. This is what I know is that Dan Call, his uncle, who has the same name, so sometimes people get it confused, they were both Daniel Houston Call. Mm -hmm. And Daniel Houston Call, the uncle, if you will, he had slaves. However, this Dan Call did not. He never had slaves on record, but there were slaves working on his property. And usually when that happens, it was by way of renting. And Dan Call was a mason, as was every distiller in Lynchburg, Tennessee, except Jack, which I I find ironic. But the interesting thing about the masonry is if you look at the KKK records for that area, they actually mirror the Mason records. Hmm. And Dan Cole was one of the Masons, and one of the other Masons was Townsend P. Green. Townsend P. Green and his wife, Mary A. Green, were the largest slave owners in the area. And Townsend and Mary's father, whose last name was Landis, had a trading company called Landis and Green. They had it officially listed on the books as a tannery company. But when I went through the records with the conservator up at Tennessee State Museum, we looked at the slaves coming in and the slaves coming out and concluded that even though he did not list slave trading as one of his businesses, it looks like he was slave trading. And there were a lot of greens in the area that are not related. Yeah. And so there's a high likelihood that he actually belonged to Townsend and Mary A. Green. At that time, it, it would have been common if a slave had developed a particular skill, such yes. as blacksmithing, or mm-hmm. potentially in the case with nearest uh, distilling. Mm-hmm. So it, it's possible he knew that before working on Dan Cole's Absolutely, farm, because likely. you would not rent someone if they were not. I mean, you would, but in that area, you don't really see renting uh, that much. I can only assume that his skill was at a place where he would have been too expensive to be bought. But he could be rented. And until recently, the sort of common, commonly known narrative about Jack Daniels is that Jack Daniel had been trained by Dan Call. Right. And in, I believe, 2016, uh, when I first heard the story, my, I, I thought you had un- uncovered it. No. But it was, it was made public, and you were flying to Singapore? I was in Singapore when in I Sing- read it. It was on the cover of the New York Times International Edition in Singapore. And so you read this story, and... You had never been to Tennessee before. I had, I'd been, had but been. only to Nashville. Okay. I had certainly never been to Lynchburg. <laughs> okay. So then what's your thought process? How do you go from Singapore to Yeah, my you Lynchburg, know, my Tennessee. thought process when looking at it, the uh, it's what my husband calls rabbit holes. So when I Everyone, I think, has hobbies that they do separate and apart from working, especially if you're a workaholic. You need to have something that you do that's separate and apart. For me, that's always been research. Mm -hmm. And so Keith, my husband, he would always look at me, and the time I would do this is during the Sabbath because I've got 24 hours where I am not doing any work, but I can't stop. My brain can't stop. And so I would just dive into what he calls rabbit holes. I'd find a subject and that for that 24 hours, I would just go nuts. And he's like, oh my God, do I have to hear about this for a whole 24 (laughs) hours? Uh, And so I just went into one of my rabbit holes. This was very common for me. But what I thought was interesting is after Clay Risen's piece from the New York Times, after his piece hit, I went on and I Googled near screen. Well, there's nothing on the entire internet about him except the article that Clay had written, and then regurgitations of that article all over the U.S. Right. That's it. And the reason why I say regurgitations is people didn't even bother to make changes. They just reprinted it. And yeah. in a lot of instances, did not credit Clay oh, wow. or the New York Times. It's just kind of just 
I'm going to make it my own, which I found fascinating. But I'm looking at this and uh, maybe the next morning or later that day, I went back on and Googled again. And all of a sudden there's a Wikipedia page that had popped up, <laughs> right? You got to love Wikipedia. Yeah. And so it, there wasn't a whole lot of information, but it had something on there that I thought was interesting is it referenced Jack Daniel and them being on the same property and all the rest of this. And it referenced the information coming from a book called Jack Daniel's Legacy. So I order the book on Amazon and continue my travels. About two and a half weeks later, maybe, I'm back at home and I open up the package and I start reading this book. Now, in that two-week period of time, Clay's article went from being what it was, which was he was helping to set the record straight along with Brown Foreman. So it, it's not like the story came out of nowhere. Brown Foreman actually pitched it. Mm -hmm. Now they pitched it as a part of a larger story, but nonetheless, uh, Clay really zeroed in on this piece about Nears Green and the fact that many believe that it was a white preacher and distiller that taught Nears Green, but it was likely his slave is how it was worded. Then we now know it wasn't his slave, but still rented. And so I am reading this book and then paying attention to what social media has now developed the story into and not just social media, but also press, not the, uh, not the responsible press. Sure. Let's say it that way. Right. However, there were a lot in the press that had, had taken the story from what clay wrote to all of a sudden, Jack Daniel was a slave owner. He had stolen the recipe there had gone through great lengths to hide Nearest Green. This is the story that was everywhere. Right. It was a game of telephone. It was a, exactly. And it was, I mean, and when I say that they were destroying Jack Daniel's name, the, the, the whole family, they were really coming after the jugular. And so I flip open the pages of Jack Daniel's legacy, expecting to not necessarily see the name Nearest Green. I expected to see them reference a slave mm -hmm. and that people put two and two together who that was. I was absolutely floored when I got probably about 10 pages in and it actually said near screen. And then it said it again and again and again and again. And then it said George Green, his son, and Eli Green, his son. And this reporter, a white reporter from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, oh, okay. right? Well yeah. So um, Ben Green, he actually worked for the, the Tuscaloosa... He worked up here for the Shelbyville Gazette down there. I think Tuscaloosa it was Tuscaloosa News. News. Yeah. He worked for the Tuscaloosa News at the time that he was traveling to Lynchburg, Tennessee, to write the authoritative biography of Jack Daniel. At that time, he was doing the research in, in 1965, 1966, although the book came out in 67. Well, Jack passed away in 19... Let's see. Prohibition began in Tennessee in 1910. Jack died in 1911 because I think Prohibition killed him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think Tennessee Prohibition absolutely killed Jack because he knew it was coming. Right. And so he passed away in 1911. And you have this white reporter from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that's coming up here and writing this story. He's interviewing everybody who really knew Jack, not those who knew him from a distance, but those who broke bread with them, his family, his friends, those who worked for him. And most importantly, his nephew and great nephews that were running the distillery after he passed away. And so I'm reading this and going, let me, let me see if I understand this. You've got a biography in which it was published in 1967, height of the civil rights era. 
You got Detroit riots that mm-hmm. happened that year. You've got up the road in Nashville is where the original sit-ins mm-hmm. began. You have Pulaski, Tennessee, not far from here, where the KKK not only began, but it was re-emerging during that period of time. You've got all this stuff going around around the small little town called Lynchburg, Tennessee, with that that time had, you know, population 300 and something. Yeah. And you have all of these people who knew Jack, who's telling his story, mentioned Nearest Green and his boys so many times that in his own biography, Nearest's family is mentioned more time than Jack's own family. Wow. And you have to look at that and go, okay, or at least I did. Social media and the press has this story all wrong. And I grew up not seeing race. 100%. What do you mean by that? By I did not... The way I describe it is I've always, I, I grew up to see the world through the lens of grace versus the lens of race. Mm-hmm. And I believe I got that from my father, but my family overall, my grandmother is what would have been called an Aryan. Uh, she's from Germany, blonde hair, blue eyes, and she grew up under Hitler's regime. Mm. My grandfather goes in there as a serviceman from the U.S. Yeah. Fighting this horrible racism that's going on over there. And this atrocity over there. And somehow he falls in love with a German woman who doesn't speak English. And she falls in love with an African-American man who doesn't speak German. They have a kid. They get married. They move back to the States, to Youngstown, Ohio, where, as you can imagine, at that peer, at that time, uh, interracial marriages were not popular. Yeah. In, in many cases, not legal. Not legal. Right. So when you look at the case of the loves, well, it was happening around that same time, right? And so you have this as the legacy of where my family began that I know of in the U.S. I don't really know my branch is too far above that. I know my great-grandmother also from Germany, and I later found out she was absolutely racist. <laughs> so we spoke to her in German. She yeah. spoke to us in German, and it wasn't until a good 30 years after she passed away that my aunt shared with me that what she was calling us was in German was little black monkeys. Oh. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. But even though that was a discomfort for her, her daughter never fell into that. So my grandmother. And so you have this family that begins in Youngstown, but then you have my father who has a really interesting background. But bottom line is, is that they taught us to see the world not through the lens of race, ever. But your father, had he had been part of the sit-ins, right? Well, here's the interesting thing. I had no idea. Really? Coming up after the break, we learn the history of the Tennessee walking horse, and Fawn Weaver tells us why she was so drawn to this story of Uncle Nearest. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. Play Ryzen, as he's writing the story about me, the follow-up story, he sends me an obituary that they had done on my father. And uh, because he was one of the original Motown hitmakers, they had done a pretty lengthy article on him. And he says, 
is this your father? Because it had reference in there who survived him and my name under was in there, even mm-hmm. though I was under my married name. Uh, he said, is this your father? And if so, is this true? And so I read the article, immediately respond to him and say, I think your journalist had this wrong. But I will, before I confirm that, I will go and ask my mother. Yeah. And so I forward it to my mom and I call her and I said, so, hey, you know, had you ever seen this? And she said, yeah. I said, so are we going to correct it? And she says, no, everything in there is true. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's true? So I knew my father had been kicked out of a university. I didn't know what university. I later learned through the article. It was Southern University. In Louisiana. But, in Louisiana. But I never knew that he was kicked out for participating in a civil rights demonstration. Mm. And so there was apparently a civil rights organization that came in and they told the students, if you get kicked out of school or if you lose your scholarship, which for an African-American was the same thing, Mm -hmm. we will pay for a one-way train ticket for you to go anywhere in this country. And so he chose Los Angeles. Wow. And that's how he ended up in the music business Yeah, is because he got kicked out of Southern University. Okay. Well, it worked out. <laughs> it worked out for him, right? Because he was there on a pole vaulting scholarship. <laughs> and my dad is short. And it's like, how low were those poles at that time that you could vault over them? I mean, you're like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, on a good day. How's that even possible? But it wasn't until then. So kind of going back to, he made sure that we never knew we weren't equal. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the greatest gift he ever gave me because instead of giving a talk about how we would have to work harder and how we would have to do this because we were black or that because we were black, he simply said, excellence is minimum for you. That's it. Mm -hmm. So we were always striving for excellence and it had nothing to do with race. So I go out into the world and I see everybody as equal. Uh, and I don't, that's not just across the board in terms of race. That was also whether you're a janitor or the president of the United States, I still called you by your first name. And, and I joke about that because I actually, when I spent time and met Bill Clinton and I just called him Bill and, you know, he's got, and he was the president at yeah. the time. And it wasn't anything that I thought twice about. And when I met other people that have been in these elevated roles that you generally give a title to. Well, I didn't grow up giving people titles like that. Everybody Mm -hmm. was equal. And so it was that world that for me, that got destroyed in 2016. Mm -hmm. So when this country, both sides of the aisle decided to use race as a wedge, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was having to view this country through the lens of race. And it broke my heart, not just because of what I saw, but because I had to see it. Mm -hmm. And during that period of time is exactly when Clay Risen's article came out. So it explains why this story, people latched onto it as here's another story of black people that have been held down and he was hidden and it was stolen and it was da 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 and it was all about race. But then I read his biography and go, of the civil rights era, you didn't have to name anybody but Jack. Mm-hmm. You would have been perfectly fine just saying Dan Call taught him. Yeah, You didn't have to introduce Nearest into the story at all, which said to me that Jack and his family wanted to make sure that Nearest's legacy would never be forgotten. And in that moment of 2016, when I was looking for hope and really truly to get back to what I had always known about this country, somehow, some way where I found it was in Lynchburg. 
So I was drawn to this small town that I read about in this biography that on its name with Lynch alone, you get <laughs> yeah. right. You would not think that's where you want to go. If you want to, if you want to put your, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you're talking about a story of love, honor, and respect, that's definitely not the city you would pick naturally, but it was the city that called to me. It was the town. You can't really call it a city. It was the town. Sure. <laughs> it was the town that called to me, but then I had to convince my husband to let me go down this rabbit hole and he was uninterested. He's six foot four black man. And y'all were living in L.A. We were living in L.A. And no black man from L.A. or six foot four right. wants to go to a city with Lynch in the name. I don't no. care if it's Virginia or Tennessee. You just don't want to do it. And so he had zero interest. But the beautiful thing was I was coming up to my 40th birthday. Mm-hmm. So this is in July. My 40th birthday is in September and we hadn't made plans yet. So he was looking at Paris and Rome and all these places I had been before, but I loved, but I'd still been. And I said, no, I want to go learn more about this story. I want to go dig in. And he's like, I am not going with you on this rabbit hole. It is not going to happen. So no, we will go. And so he, he named all these different countries and each one. I said, babe, I've, I've been, I literally traveled the world for my first book. And he says, well, what about Prague? Prague is on your list. I mean, he was grasping <laughs> for straws, right? Anywhere. Anywhere. And he said, and he says, uh, his final one was, what about Prague? And I said, I would love to go to Prague by way of Lynchburg. <laughs> Take me by way of Lynchburg. And he finally realized, because he knows me well, I wasn't going to let it go. Yeah. And so once he relented, it was only about two weeks before my birthday. And now it's about middle of August. And so I call the one person in the article that was listed as a descendant of Nears Green. There was a huge picture of him, Claude Eady. At the time, he was 91 years old. And I uh, just Googled him. Most older people don't know all their information from the the white pages is now in Google. And so I just Googled him and had his address, his telephone number, and I called him. And and I said, is this Claude Eady on Main Street? And he said, it is. And I told him who I was. And he said, I I said to him, I said, I'll be there on September 1st. Do you mind if I come and I interview you? And I'll never forget his response. He said, I don't know that I'll still be here in two weeks. (laughs) I am 91 years old. Yeah. But if I am still here in two weeks, you can come interview me. And two weeks to that day, I showed up on his doorstep. And that's where the story began. And I realized almost immediately that this wasn't just a story about whiskey making. It wasn't just a story about Jack and Nearest. It was this remarkable story about race relations in a town called Lynchburg, where when I sat down with Claude and his wife, and if if you've ever been around people that are over the age of 75, you know they no longer have a filter. It's gone. They have no reason to please anybody. They have no reason. And Claude and his wife, Miss Dot, had no filter, which I love. But I also noticed that everything that they spoke about white and black relations in Lynchburg was positive. Being from L.A. and reading about what went on in the South and what goes on in the South, Mm -hmm. I was not necessarily anticipating that. I knew that there must have been something special about Nearest and Jack's relationship, but I wasn't expecting it to be an entire town. And I looked at her, Miss Dot, because she had been a, a teacher for 40 years which meant she would have had to gone through integration. Mm-hmm. And so I look at her and I said, so Miss Dot, I, I understand, you know, the relationships here were good and all the rest of that. I said, but 
what about integration? And I thought it would trip them up, if, if to be honest with you. And I said, how was it during integration? And she said, to be honest with you, it was a non-issue. Really? I said, what do you, what do you mean it was a non-issue? <laughs> Again, I'm a California girl, right? Coming yeah. to the South. I said, what do you mean it was a non-issue? And she said, well, the kids were already playing together before school and after school and on the weekends. So they were just excited to play together during the day. And so I asked her, I said, well, what would they do? And she points out a creek that's across the street from their home and or down the street from their home. And she says, they would just be out there in the creek playing. And the first scene that flashed in my mind, again, I'm from L.A., right? was the Dorothy Dandridge movie mm-hmm. when she sticks her, Halle Berry sticks her toe in a pool in Las Vegas and they drain and the entire yeah. pool. And so I said to her, so you mean to tell me at the time that Dorothy Dandridge stuck her toe in a pool in Vegas and they drained the entire pool, you mean to tell me that the kids black and white in this town were playing in the creek across the street? Said, Absolutely. And I'm listening to this and I realized so quickly Nobody will believe me. (laughs) Nobody is going to believe this story. And so what I asked her, I said, well, her and another one of the the African-American elders that I met shortly after arriving in Lynchburg, Tennessee, who I ironically was introduced by one of Jack's descendants, his eldest descendant, uh, eldest living descendant now. And I met her, Miss Juanita Dunlap. And I, I asked, I said, can you guys bring together all of the African-American elders of the community. I didn't want anybody who wasn't African-American in there. I wanted pure, no filter. They could say whatever they wanted to say. And I brought in a camera crew because I said, if what Miss Dot and Claude just told me was true, no one will believe it. (laughs) The town's called Lynchburg. Right, 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 right. And I brought uh, what I hoped to be about 20 people together And on a Sunday afternoon after church, and when I tell you they just kept rolling into this church, I did it at the church where nearest green children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all attended in the fellowship hall behind it. And elder after elder of the community, African-American, even if they no longer live in Lynchburg, they all came back for this. Wow. And when it was all said and done, there was a little less than 50. Camera crew, angles on every side. I just began asking him about Lynchburg and the stories that Miss Dot and Claude shared were spot on. And the way that they would interchangeably talk about their relationships with people and families interchange between black and white. Mm-hmm. So the world is my parents taught me to see with no race as a barrier. I found it again in Lynchburg. But there was, I would assume, still a, a- Power dynamic, though, right? I mean, like, I don't. Well, this in is in terms of who was making the money off of the whiskey. Is that I don't know. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is, is because Nearest Green was immediately following the Civil War. Is the wealthiest African American in the area, really, and he's wealthier than many of his white neighbors. So where Nearest lived, everyone around him was white. Yeah. And so when you look at the numbers of what he was, what he was making, what he had relative to the whites that were near him, uh, yeah. He was making good money. He was making money like he was a white distiller. Okay. So I think where a lot of people confuse this is they go, well, Jack Daniels wouldn't have existed without Nearest Green. That's like saying that, I I don't know, that Jim Beam would not exist without Fred No. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Th- that's not true. There would have been another distiller. Right. Probably equally as great. So you can't say that Jack Daniels would not have existed because Jack Daniels was a brilliant businessman. He was a PR genius. I still think one of the best that this business has seen. There were 16 other distilleries. Mm-hmm. So what really distinguished it is you had a great product, but you had a businessman that was out there making sure that that product, that people knew about it. If you take Uncle Nearest, for instance, someone else could have put out this brand and it may have died after a year. And so it is one of those things where you really have to have a person who's out there who is sharing the story, who knows marketing. (laughs) He knew it really (laughs) well. I, I, I always tease people that when they say, how in the world are you coming up with this marketing stuff? I was like, I literally wake up in the morning sometimes. If I don't have an idea, I go, what would Jack do? Like literally, because I'm not a distiller, so I can't say what would Nears do. Right. I have to say the PR man, the, the marketing guy, the businessman, what would he have done? But in terms of money, it's really, really interesting when people talk about that because Jack, when his father died, they were, I mean, and when I say all the kids were fighting over what was not a whole, whole lot of money for an estate. And when you look at uh, what Nearest's family had and what Jack's family had, where people, a lot of people confuse is that Jack's sisters married into the wealthiest families in Lynchburg, mm-hmm. but they weren't Daniels. They were Tollies and Motlows. They had the money. So people look at the Motlows and say, well, they got rich because of Jack Daniel. No, they didn't. They were the wealthiest family in Lynchburg before Jack Daniel was born. Right, right. So it is, I think that that's where people confuse this story. It's way more nuanced. It's not black and white. Um, another common example would be music, right? So right. So like uh, Johnny Cash and Elvis and Hank Williams, everybody who was learning from African-American right. musicians, you know, that is a situation where white people without question profited. but this well, you're saying well, this, is a, this is a very different but situation. let's be clear uh you do you know barry gordon uh, okay yeah right i mean right okay i take your point right so it is it is that's that's not necessarily race because we did it to our own sure yeah. we did it to our own my father was one of i think four people who did not turn their publishing rights over to barry at the beginning of motown yeah and he he certainly exploited a lot of people. You know, it, yeah. I, Smokey is, a, is 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 like an uncle to me, and he would say that Barry didn't. He just mirrored what the white record labels were doing okay. at that time, right. which enough. were 360 deals. Sure. They took everything, yeah. but that wasn't just blacks. That was also whites. And, yeah. But to your point, you had these African-Americans that were writing music for these guys. Here is the difference is Jack never hid nearest. He never claimed that he was the distiller. Mm -hmm. He always gave credit to Nearest, and Nearest was paid as a top distiller. Right. And at the time, it was not what Jack Daniel is now. Oh, God, no. So so he would have been paid just a wage. Not even remotely close. When you think about all of the distilleries that were here in Tennessee prior to Tennessee Prohibition, which began 10 years before federal prohibition, so you've got... Prohibition beginning here in 1910. It was Jack's nephew who realized this is coming. So rather than just sitting here and going down with it, he moved their entire distillery to St. Louis. Mm. There is a whole branch of Nearest's family that to this day lives in St. Louis. Really? Yep. Of Nearest's family? Nearest's family. Huh, wow, okay. Because when 
Lim Motlow, Jack's nephew, moved Jack Daniel Distillery to St. Louis for those 10 years between Tennessee Prohibition and Federal Prohibition. Nearest his family, some of them were there with him and helped to build it there. But again, I think people have to remember, I have, take my executive assistant, for instance. I first hired her 21 years ago. I, I mean, she is incredible. I hope, and she plans to be with me forever. Right. Uh, but if someone is looking at this story a hundred years from now and they're looking at this, they could very easily say, well, you know, why didn't Yvette have equal pay? Do, do you right, see right. what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I see Not everybody wants to be the boss. Sure. And I think that we can't look back 150 years or 160 years ago and say, this is what Nearest wanted. What we can say is, is that he didn't actually have that choice as an African-American. Mm-hmm. So when we put out the the whiskey brand, Uncle Nearest, we called it Uncle Nearest because, number one, if we had called it Nearest Green, people would think it's like a, a golf, <laughs> right? It's like the nearest golf yeah, course, yeah, right? Yeah, the closest yeah. golf location is Nearest Green. As a matter of fact, when I applied for the TABC license, the commissioner laughed and he makes a joke to one of the other commissioners that are there. I thought it was because he like lived locally and he was going, I can't believe I did. So I walked up to him afterwards and I said, I said, oh, so are you local? And he says, oh, no, I was laughing because I said uh, they must be running out of names for distilleries, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and so we knew if we said Nearest Green and hadn't identified him as a person, yeah, people would not understand that. So we called him what everybody in Lynchburg called him. However, when we build out the distillery that you're at right now, right. the reason it's called Nearest Green Distillery is we believe that if he had built his own distillery, he would have named it after himself yeah. and not put uncle in front of it. Right, right. And so that's, so one is the bottle is us honoring him. The distillery itself is us looking at it and saying, if he could have, and if he wanted to have his own distillery, how do we think we, he would have done it. And then building this out uh, to honor that. And this property that we're doing this interview at the nearest green distillery, it used to be a, a, a Tennessee walking horse, um, Farm. Still is. Still is. Still is. We have, I mean, if you walk around, I had to laugh coming in because we have a family of Canadian geese who have migrated here and are at the pond every single day. They're super territorial, so they think this distillery is theirs, uh, <laughs> at least anywhere around the pond. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I, when I was driving in, I was like, there's got to be, I mean, there's more every day. We got to be up to like 75 of these suckers. <laughs> but you, if you look out in the back fields, we have more than 100 cattle head here. Uh-huh. We've got over 50 championship Tennessee walking horses and the horses that they sire, we have those off site until we finish the construction. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about what a Tennessee walking horse is. I love that you asked that question because Ben Green, the journalist from Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. Alabama, the journalist who wrote Jack Daniel's legacy, he only wrote one other book during his entire career. And it was the biography of the Tennessee walking horse. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so he told and the whole story. He of the told the whole story. And the really cool thing about it is, is, is the way that this horse came together was immediately after the Civil War, you don't have slaves anymore, but you have these massive plantations and nobody free to work the land anymore. So how do you cover ground? Well, in Tennessee, we had walking horses, which meant that they walked. They, <laughs> they right. literally didn't gallop. They didn't trot. They walked. So they were able to 
cover um, ground, the, the seating and all the rest of that stuff. They were able to do it. However, it would take them all freaking day to just take care of a small area. That wasn't going to work for plantations. Up in Kentucky, you had these thoroughbreds. You had these racing horses. So they were trying to use those to cover plantations. Well, that wasn't going to work because they tire out too fast. Their mm-hmm. hearts give in too quickly. And so what they did is they took a Confederate soldier's horse here in Tennessee, and they took a Union soldier's horse in Kentucky and bred them together. Yeah. And that has created the Tennessee walking horse. So I call it the horse of unity yeah. because of that. But the irony is if you look at a Tennessee walker, it's the craziest thing you ever want to see because the front half never stops trotting or galloping or running. The back half never stops walking. <laughs> if you don't know the history of it, it's the weirdest looking thing you've ever seen. But then when you look at it and you understand this is a horse of unity, it's such a massive appreciation for it. So one of the reasons in our Heritage Hall that we're building out, there is such a significant portion of that that is dedicated to the Tennessee walking horse. It's because Tennessee is essentially known for those three things, Tennessee whiskey, Tennessee music. So that's going to be country, bluegrass, Memphis blues, mm-hmm. and Tennessee walking horses. Well, and your background before getting into the whiskey business. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur, but you've also written a, a book on marriage. Two. Two yeah. books on marriage. And, you know, I, I listened to this, the stories you get animated about, and they're yeah. kind of these stories of reconciliation or, or marriage of, of, of two concepts. So the, the, the Yankee horse and the Confederate it's horse. It's love. And uh, yeah. so why is it, what, what is it about those stories that dra- drive you? you? You know, I don't know. Even when I came here, I was literally looking for a story of love because when I read the story between Nearest's family and Jack's family in the book, I read it and instinctively read between the lines, understanding what time frame this book was written and the fact that you didn't have to speak kindly of any black person at that time. And so I came here because I believed it was a story of love. I, I don't know. Some people love love. I'm one of those people. And so for me, I chase, I always have stories of love. I'm fascinated by stories of love. I have, I've been married to my husband 16 years. We have a freaking incredible marriage, but I have spent a lot of time sitting across from couples who have been through everything and who love each other to pieces. And that's who I learn from. That's who I look at and say, okay, how do I can avoid all these things in my own marriage, all the downfalls for the most part. Because you've already told me how. You've already done it. So I think it's Warren Buffett who said, people say that life is the best teacher or or your own experiences are the best lessons. He says, don't learn from your own experiences. (laughs) Learn from other people's experiences. And I, I do that same thing. But my greatest joy is reading stories of love. That is what I enjoy doing. And so if you go into my house, um, I, my husband put me on a book buying moratorium at one point because he, he said, I'm on one of those. Are now. you yeah. good? Yeah. Good, good. Did your wife put you on she it? Did. Very good. <laughs> uh, and I'm just waiting to be able to put my husband on a moratorium of something. Yeah. I haven't gotten to what that thing is, but I am waiting. But he put me on a book buying moratorium because he said, babe, all of our closets don't have clothes in them. They're filled with your books. And this is absurd. But if you were to actually look through my books, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, there's always going to be a theme of love. Always. And so to me, it's not odd that I would chase this story 
because I believed it to be a story of love. I think it's odd for other people because they did not know it was a story of love until I began to reveal it. Well, and there, I mean, we talked about the media earlier and how they presented this story and I I could envision a path where somebody like you comes in, not you, but Mm -hmm. somebody like you comes in and tells the story and they start their own distillery Mm -hmm. and they have a very difficult relationship with Jack Daniel, the company. That's absolutely. Uh, that does not seem to be the case for you. No, and that confused the living daylights <laughs> out of them. I'm going to tell you that because you are, if I were them, which is very smart, you're expecting that I am going to try to build this brand off of generating hate toward you. And because that's the way that so many do it. I mean, I'm still looking at these this Coors Miller nonsense. They've been going back and forth since the Super Bowl. Right, right, <laughs> I right, mean, this right. is absurd. It's like, yeah. okay, guys, stop it. And they're still in court over these commercials. And so you you have that happening so often in this industry and, and just industries in general. If you have something on another company, then you you build your brand by coming against them. And for me... There was absolutely no way I was going to build this brand in a manner different than Nearest and Jack lived their lives. Mm -hmm. That was a relationship of love, honor, respect, and unity. Now, for them, it it took them a while, and they'll be the first to say this. It took them a while to realize the shoe wasn't going to drop. Mm -hmm. They were were expecting that, okay, she's building it. She's pretending that she's being nice, but shoe's going to drop. Something is going to – she's going to stick the knife in at some point. And, I mean, now we're three years into this, and they're like, huh, she actually did what she said she was going to do. And and I understand why it would be confusing to them because ordinarily when you have a company, I think, I mean, what are they worth at this point? Almost $30 billion? Sure. When you have a company like that and you have a person that's coming in and building a brand on a portion of your own history, your immediate thought would be, oh, okay. They just want to sell. And so you look at this as they're going to be adversarial until they sell to us. And mm-hmm. you get that mentality. Well, in in our instance, I was very clear and going, I am not selling. So me loving on them and treating them with respect and honoring them as they are still the keepers of Jack Daniels' story, of his brand, of his legacy – me doing that, it's because it's what Jack did to Nearest. Yeah. And so this, to me, I see as reciprocal, the way that we've treated their their company. But I also, I mean, their people in the field were not nice to my people in the field when this <laughs> began. And they're still getting used to it. I mean, honestly, they're still getting used to it. But they also recognize we're not going nowhere. Well, and your company, um, yeah. I mean, it, it sort of carries that legacy of of blending the two. Your mm-hmm. head of whiskey production is a former Jack Daniels employee. And then if I can reveal this, I overheard that your uh, master blender yeah. is going to be a descendant. Of yes. Yeah. So here's the irony of it is, is that uh, for those who go down to, to Lynchburg, they hear a lot about Miss Mary Bobos. Well, that's Sherry's, that's Sherry Moore's great grandmother. She grew up in that house. That, that home is now owned by Jack Daniel because of the connection. But Jack Daniels' family, because he had no children, all of his descendants are either by way of marriage or by his siblings. And Sherry Moore is one of his descendants. 
Victoria Edie Butler, who, yes, you just let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> we can cut it out. If I <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, we'll, it will announce it pretty soon. Sure. Uh, is being, is being elevated to master blender. So you've got a descendant of Jack and a descendant of nearest who will again be working side by side in the final product of what yeah. goes into our bottles every single time. Victoria's already been blending our 1884 and has done a phenomenal job with that. So all we're doing is acknowledging that and putting her over all of the blending. But yeah, no, you you have Nearest's family and Jack's family here. And I can tell you every weekend when the distillery is open, we have Tennessee Squires that come through. And Tennessee Squires, it's the big Jack Daniel club. And these guys come in with Jack Daniel tattoos on, I mean, up and down their arms and, and have such a huge passion for it. But they're coming to show respect to Nearest. Cool. And so it is something that uh, we're bringing together two very different groups of people. Uh, it's interesting because at this distillery, I've been able to create the environment I grew up in. And by that, I mean, because of the, the racial division that we have going on right now, there's so many hot buttons. You, you almost can't say anything without someone dividing that statement by race. And so you have that going on. So when people come in, on the weekends for a tour, I, I see whites come in, uh, Southern Southerners mostly, but just whites in general that will come in and then African-Americans that will come in. And in the beginning, they will be standoffish from one another. By the end, they're sipping whiskey together. That's cool. They're learning about each other's families. We have an area out in the back where people can get cocktails, our Copper Skies patio. And you literally watch the most beautiful sunset in Middle Tennessee. We all sit out there on Saturday nights and sip cocktails and watch the sun go down. And if you went out there, it is the most interesting group of people because it's every color, every background. You got billionaires sitting next to gardeners. Like it is, it's what I hope America can be. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap on the first season of The Reckon Interview. We've spoken with several brilliant minds this season, and I hope that we've expanded your idea of what's possible in the South as much as we have mine. We'll be back in a few weeks and have several ridiculously cool folks lined up for interviews in Season 2, but I do want to take a quick moment to thank a few people, to raise a class to them, if you will. All of my guests this season, including Fawn Weaver today, have been incredibly gracious with their time, but I particularly want to thank my very first guest, Roy Wood Jr., for being so patient and so generous. I also want to thank Lee Baines III and Sub Pop Records for letting us use D-Reconstructed as our theme song all season long. If you haven't yet, go download all of his albums. You'll be glad that you did. And then listen to the episode where we interviewed him. Thank you to Alexander Ritchie and to Steph Colburn and Edit Audio for really elevating the sound quality for the episodes later in the season. I'd like to toast Amy Yerkinen, Jonathan Soboleski, Ben Flanagan, Rebecca Walker-Benjamin, Ike Morgan, Scott Brodeur, and Robin Hammontree for your support and your feedback this season. And of course, I want to thank you, the listeners. Please shoot me an email or tweet me at, at John Hammontree and let me know who you'd like to hear from in Season 2. Tell me what you liked about the season and tell me what you think we need to work on. And hey, we want even more people listening to this show, so now's the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and to tell your friends about us. And until next season, keep on reckoning. Keep on reckoning.